Romans chapter 5. We have Bibles in the back. Um, make those available for you. Guys, if you don't have one, uh, feel free to use one. If you don't own one, feel free to take one. It's our gift to you. Um, we started a, a series, uh, kind of a topical series, uh, several weeks ago, um, and we're going to be getting back into the Gospel of Mark in just a few more weeks once we're done with this little series. But the series is called Signs of Life, and the whole gist behind it, the whole big idea behind it is that uh, wherever God shows up, whatever God does, there are always evidences or signs that God has been there, that God has done something. Uh, we saw the greatest sign that God has not abandoned this world to its own brokenness and depravity and destruction and the curse that it lay under currently, like what Romans 8 says. Uh, but the greatest evidence that God has not abandoned this world to its own destruction is that God came into this world. Jesus came into this world. We celebrated that, obviously, uh, in Christmas, uh, remembering the fact that God has not left us abandoned, but that God came into this world uh, through Jesus, and Jesus did the work of the Father on the cross. Um, but then we began to see that in the, our lives, in other words, subjectively, there are some evidences in which when God works in our hearts and our lives, that there should be evidences or traces that God is doing something in your life. We call those signs of life. Uh, we've looked at several of these these past several weeks. Uh, what we're going to be taking a look at here today, one of the greatest signs of life that actually the Bible tells us uh, that actually determines, it, 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 it's, a, it's a signpost um, determining, showing, uh, declaring whether or not you've really truly met God is it's the issue of love. Um, you can claim to know God, you can claim to have a relationship with God like what the writer John describes, um, and yet if you're not loving, if you're not a loving person, if you're full of grudges, if you are bitter with everyone, if you are constantly uh, spewing hate and constantly prideful and looking at other people that don't act like you, look like you, think like you, go to the same church as you, worship like you, if you're critical of all those people, then what you're actually demonstrating is that you may actually not have a changed heart. You may have adapted to a form of Christianity, but you're really not a Christian. You need to understand that the main sign that the Bible's going to tell us that you have passed from death into life is you love. You love differently. You love without strings. You love in a way that is akin to the love of God. So with that, uh, we'll be taking a look at this particular subject matter today. I'm going to pray first, and then we'll read the passage. Uh, we have a lot of scripture to cover here today, so make sure that you guys have your Bibles ready to go. Um, and we'll be looking at a lot of different things in terms of scripture throughout this, because the subject or the topic of love throughout the Bible is huge. It's huge. And so it was actually very difficult to select what verses to omit, otherwise I would have preached for six hours. And uh, you're welcome, I'm not doing that, but... The point of the matter is, is there's a lot, to a lot of topics, or a lot to cover throughout this topic, and uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work, begin to look at this really important subject, uh, the sign of life. So, join me. God, right now, we, we pray for your help. We need your help, because, God, it's easy for us to, um, to deceive ourselves. It's easy for us to just simply look at the fact that, because we might be part of a church, because we might be... Uh, part of a Christian culture, maybe because we memorize scriptures, maybe because we have a Bible and we've highlighted it. There's lots of cultural things, Lord, that we can look at in our lives and actually be lulled into a sense of deception, whereby we think we know you, we think we have life, but we really don't. And so, God, my words aren't going to be able to be the thing that reveals this dark secret. Your words will. So God, I pray even for areas in my own heart 
where I'm not loving. God, I want to be better. I want to love more like you. God, I know we all do. That are truly yours, that truly belong to you. We want to love like you. So help us, God, we pray. Transform us, we ask. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to start with this verse because it basically, in a lot of ways, sort of uh, sets us out into the direction where we want to go. So I'm going to read it. It's Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 5 and 6, and then verse 8. It says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts for while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, but God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. This is one of the most remarkable passages, I think, in the New Testament. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to peel this back for you just a little bit layer by layer just so you can understand uh, the enormity of how impacting and how profound this particular verse is. I'll give you a couple examples. He says, for while we were still weak, that word weak actually in the Greek can be also retranslated as crippled or broken or uh, without uh, or sick or diseased. Uh, think of somebody that just is incapable of being of any value or any benefit or any utility whatsoever to you. Think back in fifth grade when you were being picked or you were formed the lineup of people that were being picked for kickball and everybody omitted you. Right, remember those days, the insecurities, and you're like, why didn't they pick me? Because you don't throw good, all right? At the end of the day, you don't know how to throw. You're not fast on the court. Nobody wants it. You're of no utility whatsoever to the, key, to the team. So you've been overlooked. So what, what Paul's saying is that even while we were still weak, we were in our sense of depravity. We were in a sense of complete, uh, no utility whatsoever, no value whatsoever to God. It says that he chose us. And he says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The word ungodly basically just simply means unlike God. I want you to think about this with me in our culture. Who are the people that we choose to select to be our closest friends or choose to select to avoid? At the end of the day, they're the people that are not like us or the people that are like us, right? The people that we oftentimes select to be our closest friends are those that we have the most in common with, right? They're, in other words, they're like us. We like them because they share the same tastes in movies like us, or same taste in clothing like us, or same taste in art like us, same taste in music like us. You get the idea. But those people that are not like us, that don't like the same music as us, that don't like the same art as us, that don't dress the same types of clothing that we wear, those are the type of people we oftentimes tend to shun or push away. Again, go back to the playground when you're in fifth grade. Like, if you are trying to, at that age identify yourself as somebody unique you didn't want to hang out with like the guy that nobody wanted to hang out with because that guy actually ruined your reputation all right you knew in your mind that if you were seen with that person hanging out with them at the bench eating your you know sandwich then somehow someone would get the wrong idea like you guys are friends no no, no we're not friends no no i don't have anything to do with this guy it just so happens to be he sat next to me but the point of the matter is is that we either select or shun people based upon their likeness to us. But here's what God says. At the right time, Christ died for those that are totally unlike him. Okay? It gets better. He says, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This word sin 
And sinners is actually sort of the verb form of the word sin, which means it's an active, constant, ongoing rebellion, sinfulness, missing the mark. It's sort of the general description or descriptor or of those that just miss the mark of who God is. It also can sort of be a banner or an umbrella for even the word that we oftentimes use, transgression, means we willfully break God's law. So here's what he's saying, that Christ has done something for us. God has done something for us in Christ, even though we are of absolutely no utility, no value whatsoever to him, even though we are completely unlike him, and even though not just simply unlike him and of no value, but we were actually set ourselves in opposition against God, our creator, that he did something for us of absolute supreme value that can only be described as love. This is how God loves. It's important to note one more thing before I jump in. When we talk about love in the Bible, we're not talking about sentimentality. It's really important to know this because our culture, when we think of love, we think of sentimentalism. We think of a warm, fuzzy feeling when we say, like, ah, I'm in love. Oftentimes, what we're actually saying is, I feel really good inside. Um, you might actually need other people around your life to tell you if what you're actually doing is love. If you're in love, and all you keep doing is having sex with your partner, making out with them, doing things that is taking something from them, you actually may be in lust, that's more akin to sentimentality, rather than love. Love, according to the Bible, is when somebody, in this case God, does something for people that are completely unlike him, does something for people that are of absolute no utility or value to him, and does something for people that are actually straight-up enemies. That's how the Bible describes love. That God has done something so profound for people like this. And what Paul is saying is that was us. This is how God's loved. That love, according to the Bible, is not a sentimentality, sentimentalism. It's an action. Now, you may end up at some point in that action getting sentimental. Okay, so in other words, what we're, what we're not saying is there is no place for emotion within the love of God. No, there's profound place for emotion in the love of God. It's just that we don't build from there. That's not the foundation that we build upon. We build upon action, and oftentimes out of actions comes emotion. Emotion's amazing. It's beautiful. But here's what is oftentimes problematic. If we think of love as merely being simply an emotion, that what ends up happening is we become people that live for these warm feelings and emotions that we've had with God. And one of the things that you'll discover is you don't always have those. Let me even say this. If you're in a marriage, if you build your marriage on sentimentality and not love, you're doomed. Even before you said, I do. Because what you're thinking is that you've been lulled into some belief that for the rest of your life, you're going to have this climactic feeling of emotion and sentimentality that at some point... When you hit the wall and that emotion's gone and it's not there and the woman's had three babies, she doesn't feel very attractive, there's not a lot of intimacy going on in the marriage, there's not a lot of like hot dates happening on Friday night, you're falling to bed at 8.30 on a Friday night because that's just what you do when you're 40 plus and the reality is there's not a lot of like emotions that are driving this thing. Where's the love? That's what happens. This is like I'm giving you the anatomy of, of an affair, all right? You're like, How, wh where do affairs come from? Here's the anatomy. At some point, you built upon a false foundation and premise of love. It's not love. It's sentimentality. But when you build upon love, 
love actually becomes this gargantuan foundation which we build upon. Let me give you one final example. It has to be this. Here's why. If Jesus says, love your enemies, it doesn't make any sense to mean have warm, fuzzy feelings towards those guys that hate you. Right? Think good thoughts and have warm, fuzzy emotions for the people that, like, turn their back on you and blog nasty things about you and sent you a bad email or gave you stink eye in the parking lot or did something to you. You're just like, I want to kill that guy. They're not nice to me. But I got to have warm, fuzzy feelings for them because Jesus said so. Not at all what Jesus said. He said love. What's love? Love is an act done for somebody that's of no utility to you, maybe even totally unlike you, and maybe even somebody that has actually been straight up rebellious to you. This is what Paul says. Okay? So I want to jump out from that and begin to kind of formulate um, what we're going to be looking at. We'll look at three things very quickly here today. The first of which is we'll look at love for God, because what Paul is saying is that really at the end of the day, a Christian is not someone who's perfect, you know, nor is it like cheesy bumper sticker day, like, we're not perfect, we're just forgiven. Like, that, that's not necessarily what a Christian is, right? A, a Christian is somebody that has been impacted and believed and transformed by trust and confidence in what Romans 5 says. That's what a Christian is. It's someone that says, I don't feel like I deserve that, but I receive it. And that changes your heart. That changes your, your, your position, your posture towards God vertically, but also changes your posture towards others horizontally. So we'll take a look at three things. One, love for God. Two, love for others. Three, love from God. So first of all, let's take a look at love for God. Uh, to do that, I want you to open up real quickly to the gospel of Matthew chapter 22. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus is approached by a... Uh, a young guy who asked him this important question, you know, what must I do to be saved, and so on and so forth. And then Jesus goes on and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this great, uh, this great, um, this is the great and first commandment. And this is the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus summarizes in verse 40, on these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. In other words, what Jesus, most rabbis, most teachers, most Bible scholars believe that what Jesus is saying is he's doing what's common in most uh, religious circles in the first century. Is they would oftentimes summarize certain key passages, and they believe that. That's kind of what Jesus is doing. That he's sort of summarizing, saying the, the whole of the prophets, um, not just Isaiah and Ezekiel, but also what Moses stated and what's identified oftentimes as the Ten Commandments can be summarized in these two things. Love God, love your heart, soul, mind, strength, and might, and love others. So I want you to take a look at the next slide. I want to show you the Ten Commandments because in a lot of ways, um, most scholars believe that in, within this particular passage that what Jesus is saying is he's sort of summarizing this, kind of show you how this works. Um, in other words, let's start first of all with love for God. Uh, what a Christian is, is a Christian is somebody that has been in you know, transformed by God's love, and then loves God. I remember for me, when I first became a Christian, uh, this was the first and most recognizable thing that changed my life, was I went from being somebody that actually admired God. I, I was, uh, before I was a Christian, um, I was actually brought up in a family that had gone to church every single Sunday. Um, I had known a lot about God. There was nothing I would even say 
per se, in my actual theology that was, that was wrong theologically. I would say that I knew about God, but what happened when God saved me was it went from merely being sort of a knowledge about God to being a knowledge of God, a relationship with God. Um, not just in terms of admiring God from a distance. Uh, in other words, God went from, for me from being a concept to being an actual life-changing reality to me. So one of the first things I began to notice was that I, I loved God. I actually loved God. I wanted to know him. I wanted to read my Bible. I wanted to be where God's people were at, wherever that was at, and whatever these people looked like. And, and even if they were radically different than me, I wanted to be with them. I wanted to know the God that they worshiped because I really wanted to know God. I loved God. So in other words, God changed my heart from being a heart that was sort of cold and cynical and full of doubt and full of fear and angst towards him to actually saying, I want to know him. I really, truly want to love him. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, my love for God, like, became perfect and, you know, after several years of being a Christian that I've kind of arrived. I've, I've not. In fact, I would even go so far as to say a lot of times my Christian walk is, is like this. It's like a roller coaster. There's times I feel really close to God. There's times I feel like I'm doing well. There's other times I just feel like I'm not doing good at all. And it really oftentimes comes out the way that I talk and the things that I say and the words that come out of my mouth that are, you know, just filthy and, and not good. Um, you know, that according to any Christian standards, it's like, that's, shouldn't be saying that. Like, I wouldn't want my kids to say that. It's not good. Those words that come out of my mouth are not good. But, so my point is that it's not an issue of like, you arrive at this level, but what happens, someone described it this way, what takes place in your life, it's not that you get to a particular um, position. It's not about necessarily the, the perfection of your life. It's about the direction of your life. That God is taking us on a path, a direction where we want to be more loving to God. We want to love God more. It's, it's sort of like a seed that's now implanted in our heart. We want to grow in our love for God. That's what God did with me. I'm sure that's probably what God has done with many of you here today. But what happens here is in the Ten Commandments, I'll go through this very quickly, uh, what we see is sort of Jesus' summary. He says, in this, the law and the prophets can be summarized by love God, love others. So take a look at the Ten Commandments. First one is, you must not have any other God before me. Second one, you must not make for yourself an idol. Third, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Fourth, remember to observe the Sabbath day. So in other words, oftentimes scholars identify that there's sort of a, a, a distinction, a kind of a, two tablets oftentimes they would describe it as. The first tablet has to do with God, all right? All these things are sort of vertical. Uh, not having any of their idols, not worshiping any of their God, not taking the name of God in vain, all these other things. Um, and really the solution to that is not just by simply omitting these things, but if somehow your heart can be changed, whereby now you love God, would you want to take God's name in vain? Would you want to sell God out for some cheap imitation God or imposter? I'll give you an example of this. I've done a lot of weddings, a lot, over years of my life. But this year, it's booked. We've got a lot of weddings coming up. I'm excited about it. I love doing weddings. They're a lot of fun. I've never in all my years of ever having to do a wedding, I've had to look at the bridegroom and say, look, to your wife, to be, um, make certain that you never, like, fire up any past affairs or relationships that you had in high school on Facebook. In other words, you know, right there in front of everyone, don't have sex with any other woman other than this girl that's right in front of you. Don't have any other emotional affair with any other woman than this girl right here. They'd be kind of weird and out of place because it's assumed by the way he's looking at her and the way she's looking at him 
That would never happen. Why? One word. Four-letter word. Love. They love each other. He's, never, he's not going to cheat on her. He loves her. He doesn't want to cheat on her. He wouldn't want to take her name in vain. He wouldn't want to say something that would betray her or betray her trust because love is a fulfillment. Does that make sense? So here's what really what Jesus is saying is that one of the evidences that you have met God is that you have love for God. The second thing that we see is love for others. Matthew 22, verse 40 goes on to say, Then Jesus said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, go back to that other slide that had the Ten Commandments on it. I'll go through these also really quickly. And on this second tablet of the law um, is a description of different types of relationships you have on a horizontal level with people in society. Your neighbor, your friends, your family members, people that you interact with, people in your neighborhood, people in school, people in your dorms. You get the idea. It goes on and says this. Honor your father and your mother. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet. So here's the thing. If you were able to love your neighbor, if you were, to able, if you were able in your heart of hearts to truly have love for the neighbor the way that God demonstrated his love for you, then would you want to murder them? Probably not. High likelihood, no. Um, would you want to commit adultery? Meaning, would you want to take their spouse from them or take something from them that doesn't belong to you yet because you've not covenanted yourself to them? Would you want to do that? I say this oftentimes to guys and girls in relationships. If you're locked in a relationship right now and there's a lot of sexuality going on and you haven't committed yourselves to each other, what is really happening is something that's actually devaluing you. In other words... The guy is taking something from you that you've not fully given to over him entirely. In other words, you're not married yet. He's taking something from you that, now you may have actually given it to him, but at the end of the day, you may have actually given it to him because you wanted him. So in other words, you weren't really giving yourself to him because you truly loved him. You were giving yourself to him because you wanted something in return from him. That's really not love. These are just contracts self-centered contracts that at the end of the day lead to a breakdown and a brokenness. But if you truly love someone, you wouldn't want to steal from them. You wouldn't want to commit adultery. You wouldn't want to lie to them. You wouldn't want to covet what they have. Why do we covet? Well, oftentimes it's because we're not satisfied with what we have or one of the reasons why we're not satisfied with what we have because we build our identity upon what we have. Like, I'm the dude with the Hummer. Like, that's cool and all, but what it, like, that's, that's awesome until you crash your car, and then what are you, the dude with the Hummer that's bashed up and messed up? Like, like, you understand what I'm saying? Is that your identity, if it's in anything other than God, who created you and loves you, then you have the high likelihood of losing that or having it marred or broken. Don't be defined by those things. But that's one of the reasons why we covet, because a heart and a heart's are in love with the wrong things. We love the wrong things. Rather than loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and might, we love something else other than God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and might. At the end of the day, it's a love affair with ourselves. We love ourselves. We love our identity. We love who we want to be. And we try so hard to somehow carve out this identity. And what Jesus does is he comes in and says, I want to liberate you from that because you are your own worst critic. And you are your own worst slave master. You're not a good slave master. 
When you fail yourself, how does, it, how, does, how does your life end up going? This is one of the reasons why oftentimes people can go on with life, and their life's very difficult, and they rarely forgive themselves, because you just become another person in the line of other people that have let you down. In this case, it's you. You've let yourself down. And what Jesus does is he says the way to be liberated is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So what we see not only is love for God, but we also see love for others. And I'm going to read a couple of the verses. So why don't you turn real quick to the book of uh, John chapter 13, verse 34. John chapter 13, verse 34. Uh, being at verse 34 to 35, we'll read it. It says this, a new commandment I give to you. Not new in that it's never been around. You've never heard this before. New in that it's fresh. Think about it this way is what he's saying. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all men or all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So there's this really powerful, potent word in this particular verse, and it's a two-letter word, if. Love God, love others, and if you love others, all men, everybody around you on a horizontal level, all men are going to be given a banner, a sign, an indication that you are his disciple. If that's true, if that if is a command, any if or any command also has the potentiality of being violated. Right? Uh, Francis Schaeffer, the late Francis Schaeffer, actually wrote a book, more of an essay, called The Mark of the Christian. I would highly recommend you guys writing it down, checking it out, doing a search, Checking it out. It's an awesome book, and I've tried to have it as an audio book. I've listened to it a lot of times. It's one of those books I've listened to many, many times because I hope to memorize it, thinking that somehow maybe it'll get into my thick skull and make its way down into my heart and begin to change me. It hasn't quite happened yet. But the point of the matter is, is that love becomes something that Jesus says it's a gauge. It's a measurement. It can be measured. So here's the thing. I can say to others, hey, I love God. You, can, you, can't, you can't judge me on that. You can't test me on that. Because you can push back and be like, what are you going to say? Nothing. Because there's no way to measure that. But if I say, I love God, but I hate others, Jesus says, now you can measure that. And if you say that you love God, and yet you hate others, then really what you're demonstrating is that you're giving the world, what it, Schaefer points out, he says, when we fail to love others, the world has the right to question whether or not we're really Christians. That's what he's saying. In other words, when we love each other, the world visibly has a picture, a sign, an image. What's a sign for? A sign, think of it like a billboard. Sign points you to where you need to go. And when the world sees people loving other people rather than being critical, judgmental, argumentative, spiteful, but seeing others love even when there is disagreement. See, this is something that isn't, isn't challenging for a lot of us. Even when we disagree, it's hard for us to not disagree amiably. Would you agree? It's difficult for us sometimes. We, when someone disagrees with us, it's sometimes like our pride gets wounded and my identity is kind of locked up in my pride and my wealth of wisdom and knowledge and how dare you not take my wealth of wisdom and knowledge and I'm frustrated so I'm going to disagree with you in a very rude harsh tone 
And what Francis Schaeffer was saying is that when we do that, when we are rude and we are not loving, we actually give the world an opportunity to question whether or not we really belong to Jesus. That's subjective. The second thing we see, take a look at the next verse. I'll read this to you. He also goes on and points out in John chapter 17, this gets more serious right here because if it was just simply people questioning, pushing back whether or not, you know, are you really a Christian? Look, at the end of the day, as Christians, if you are a Christian here today, you're going to fail. We're all going to fail. We're not always going to be loving the way that we should or we ought to. So if, if we could just sort of embrace that reality, then we're going to be a little bit better with regard to how we approach this particular issue. And people will be oftentimes questioning, do you really know Jesus? I mean, I can remember as a very young Christian, I had a very bad temper. I had a very bad temper, and I would lose it sometimes. And it, was, it wasn't good. It wasn't pretty. And oftentimes, I got myself into a lot of trouble, even as a young Christian. And every time I did, someone inevitably or invariably would come to me and be like, I thought you were a Christian. What they're doing is exactly what Jesus said they would do. Is they're pushing back, saying, don't think that you're a Christian because somehow this doesn't seem to resonate with God who is love or loving. Second thing, John chapter 17, verse 21, this gets a little bit more serious. Jesus is making a, uh, saying a prayer to the Father, and he says that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So here's what Jesus says. He's praying for oneness. Now, this oneness cannot be institutional oneness. In other words, oneness, you know, may the world see that we are one big, happy, you know, institutionalized church. It cannot be that because there have been institutionalizations that have been highly monolithic and uniform, and yet there's a lot of anger and bitterness and hatred going on inside the ranks of those people and inside the depths of their hearts, right? Even in a marriage, which is an institution. You can have a husband and wife in a marriage, locked in for life, and yet there's no love. Right? So this can't be talking about oneness institutionally. It has to be talking about oneness in a deep-rooted, deep-leveled commitment to love and honor and give ourselves to one another as God gave himself to us as it was revealed in Romans chapter 5, like I read earlier. So here's what happens. Jesus says, in essence, what he's pointing out, and Francis Shaver points out in his book, he says, when we fail to love others, the world has the right to question whether or not Jesus truly came. This is where it gets pretty profound, because if you're a Christian, what you really want more than anything is you want people to know God. You want people to know how good God is. And when we fail to be loving with each other and fail to devote ourselves to one another and care for one another, again, not in sentimentalism, but in a deep-rooted commitment whereby we come alongside, even if somebody's wrong, we can agree to disagree in a loving fashion. Even if somebody may need to be reminded of something that's going on in life because maybe they're in sin, love also comes alongside someone who may be sinning and helps them. It doesn't just simply stay silent or stay quiet. It comes alongside in a loving, non-judgmental fashion that says you're doing this and it's actually interrupting, interfering the fellowship that's in your family, in your relationship, in the church, in the community group, wherever. And you do it in a loving fashion. But when we don't, what ends up happening is the church actually oftentimes looks at, or the world looks at the church and says, does God even exist? Does God even care? Is God even interested in our lives? And Jesus is saying this is what would happen when we fail to be loving on a horizontal level or love our neighbor. Now who's our neighbor? 
Well, real quick, obviously Jesus makes the point that our neighbor is not just simply someone who lives next door to us, it's somebody that's within our sphere of influence. It could be a Christian, it could be a non-Christian, it could be a pagan, it could be somebody that is just on the opposite end theologically than us. They may not have anything in alignment or in agreement with us theologically, but Jesus says we should love them. So this is really essential, and this is something that cuts to the core of who we are, because oftentimes what we like to do is we like to become tribalistic. We build our little tribes, we build our little distinctions, we're like little birds of a feather that flock together, we find our little group of people that we really like, and we're like, I'm going to hang out with these other people, but here's what happens. Not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with having a little group of friends that you connect with, that's fine, but here's what happens. Oftentimes, inevitably, when we do that, we formulate our own little group that's sort of uh, centered around this particular pet doctrine or this particular person of interest or this person of you know, great potency or power or teaching or whatever, and we formulate these little clubs or groups or denominations or sects or uh, however you want to describe it around these people. What then typically happens is we demonize everybody outside of that circle. And those inside the circle become sort of filled with this toxin of, oh yeah, those guys out there. You know, they, they don't teach the Bible the way that we do. They don't think the way that we do. They don't sing songs the way that we do. They don't, you know, they don't worship the way that we do. They don't say the Bible the way that we do. They don't have the same version of the Bible that we do. And we demonize them. That is exactly what Jesus is saying is what destroys our testimony personally, subjectively, but also the storyline, the narrative, the gospel, that Jesus is actually coming to this world for a profound purpose. Paul basically would put it this way. You can preach or speak with the tongues of angels. You can prophesy. You can have visions. You can even have faith to move mountains. I mean, this is profound. It's in 1 Corinthians 13. But what Paul's saying is that even if you have all of these things and yet you still don't love one another, what Paul is saying is that is not insignificant. That's radically significant. This is so mind-boggling because you can be someone that be like, look, i got a very successful ministry. I've memorized a lot of passages. You know, I'm leading a Bible study. There's a lot of people listening to me. Yeah, but if you're a jerk to other people, jerk at home, jerk to everybody around you, and you are never repentant, never acknowledge it, never stop doing that, just are constantly living in this rhythm or zone whereby you are stepping on, crushing other, demonizing other people, what Paul says is that it's actually a banging cymbal or a gong. It's like dissonance rather than harmony or symmetry or beauty. And Paul says it's not insignificant. How we live our lives in relation to God vertically and how we live our lives in relation to other people horizontally is absolutely a sign as to whether or not we've met this God that we claim to know. I'm going to finish with this thought that at the end of the day, what we need to take a look at is love from God. Because we can be people that if I were to stop right here and just say, we're done. All right, guys, stop being mean. Stop being nasty. Stop being rude and ridiculous and judgmental towards everyone. Start being nice. Start you know, baking cookies for people and saying hi to people on the street and helping old ladies cross the street and start just doing kind stuff to everybody. Some of you, kind of what will happen is two groups of people will sort of form within this group. One group of people will be like, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna do the best that I can, but you're gonna find at some point you're gonna begin to be reminded of people that you actually hate. 
You're going to begin to think about, oh, wait a minute, I can't do that because I hate these people. I'm frustrated with these people. I don't love this person. It might even be your spouse. And you're like, how do I get beyond this? And you're immediately going to think, I guess I'm not a very good Christian, and I shouldn't continue to do what I'm doing because I'm not a very good Christian. I probably may not even should go to church. And you're going to feel a sense of complete oppression and despair. It's where some people oftentimes live. It's full of despair. Or you may be the type of person that's going to say, you know, I'm going to do that because Jesus said to do it, and I'm going to do it everything that Jesus tells me to do because that's the right way to live, and everything, truth trumps everything. So I'm going to go down that path because it's true. I'm going to do it. And you're going to do everything you can to try to be kind-hearted, loving, nice, all these types of good sentimental emotions or whatever to other people, and you're going to find yourself getting engaged, maybe helping out with the Homeless Overflow Center, maybe giving to the church, maybe giving large sums of money away, giving your time, energy, talents, prophesying, doing all these things, and yet in your heart of hearts, you're going to look at other people that aren't giving as much money as you are, aren't giving as much time as you are, aren't memorizing as many scriptures as you are, aren't going down and preaching the gospel in a farmer's market as passionately and as zealously as you are, and you're going to criticize them. You're going to judge them. And that's not loving. So we're stuck. That's what I'm really trying to say. Like, where's he going with this? Where I'm going is we're stuck. How do we get the heart to love? Last week, we were uh, singing a song. It was an old school delirious song. And, and for the first time, it just, there's a lyric in it. I've sung many, many times. It just stood out to me, and it just made sense to me for some reason that particular day. And the line of the song was, forgiven so that we can forgive. For some reason, the very first time ever hearing that song or singing that song, it just stood out to me. I'm like, ah, it made sense. The reason why I need to first be forgiven as kind of an order of primary importance before I forgive is because I don't know how to forgive rightly unless I've been shown it. In other words, it's kind of like being on a path in life, all right, those of you that are dependent upon your iPhone 5s and Siri, right, or 4S, whatever, and you don't have Siri or you're in a dead zone, you're like, I'm lost. I don't know where to go. Like, I can't find Starbucks. My life is absolutely jacked right now because I don't know where I'm going. You feel absolutely lost because you don't, you know what you want. It's in your heart. Like, I want triple latte with soy, whatever, all this crazy stuff. I want that. I need that. I don't know how to get there because I'm lost because Siri's out. That's the way that all of us are in life. We know we need to forgive. We know we need to love. We know it's good when we show forgiveness. We know it's good when we love because we know what it's like to receive love to some degree, bits and pieces of it. But we don't know how to get there because we're lost. How do we get there? The way that we get there, the way that we forgive, is we need to see, first of all, to the extent by which we were forgiven. The way that we love is we need to see how loved we are. And this is where we need to really pause and finish with this final thought and think about this. Take a look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John chapter 4. Turn there real quick. 1 John 4. I'm going to finish up as fast as I can while remaining, having some time remain to worship and think, consider these things. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says this. Beloved, let us love one another for, the love, for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And there you have it. John's just like, look, if you claim to know God but you don't love elsewhere, John says, we're actually lying. Verse 9, he says, in this love of God was manifest or made visible among us. 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the covering for our sins, of our sins. Verse 11 says, beloved, if, or that word can be translated, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In the Greek, this is oftentimes what's known as the indicative imperative paradigm. All right, just follow me for a second, just kind of think about this. I know there might be big words, but the word indicative means something that indicates something, something that is already preexistent, something that's there. And what the writer John's doing, he's saying, you need to understand something. Here's, here's a matter of fact, here's an issue that has happened. It can be seen, it can be observed, it's, it's real, it's indicative. And then he goes on and he gives what's basically called imperative. In other words, what's imperative for us to do, something for us to do, an action item, in other words. Here's what oftentimes happens in churches uh, is that there's a tendency to focus on the imperatives. Here's what you need to do. Read your Bible, love God, sing loudly, give your money, go help at the soup kitchen, do all these things. And like I said, if that's all we hear, we either end up in some pathway way down the road, either in complete despair or we end up in complete arrogance because we actually have deceived ourselves thinking we're doing it and we judge everybody else who's not living to the standard that we are. It's because, fundamentally, we haven't heard the gospel. We actually think we're the ones that are doing something to contribute to our salvation. This is why what we need to understand is that the Bible oftentimes is written with this indicative imperative in this order. In other words, take a look at this, the indicative. If or since God so loved us. In other words, something that God did. He loved us. One of the reasons why I think oftentimes we don't choose to love is because we know that love and loving people can sometimes be messy. If we've ever met people around us that maybe, you know, it's like, you know, uncle who's like, a meth head, and you're like, oh, I don't want to hang out with him. It's going to absorb so much of my time. I just don't have time for this guy. Or how about the soup kitchen? I don't know why I keep throwing out soup kitchen. Maybe that's like prophetic words. Some of you are like, I got to go help out the soup kitchen. Um, some of you, you know, like, I got to go help out the soup kitchen. And you're like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, it's, that's going to take a lot of time, maybe like four or five hours a week, and then I got to end up dealing with people's trash throughout their life. You know, they, they bring a lot of junk to the table and a lot of baggage, and I don't want to deal with that. And I'm I just not interested in doing that. That's, it gets messy. We don't love because oftentimes we realize that when we love, it, also, it often means having to pick up other people's baggage. And when the Bible speaks of God's love, it does not speak, first of all, of a sentiment that God has for us because it speaks deeper than that, bigger than that, broader than that, in that God's love for us is a love that actually comes to us who have not only have no utility, meaning we are completely unlovely before a lovely God. Secondly, because not only that, we are sinners, we have missed the mark. Thirdly, we're completely unlike God. In other words, that's another fine, fancy way of basically saying, you and I, we have a lot of baggage. A lot of sin, a lot of rebellion, a lot of things that are in our lives that, you know, someone described as dysfunctionalities. The Bible just simply says it's, it's sinfulness. It's these sinful proclivities. We have a lot of baggage. And God's love is a love that basically says, I will come to them, rescue them, and pick them up, even though they have no utility to me. 
even though they have a lot of baggage. And I will not just simply sweep away their baggage. This is not what God does. The love of God is not one that just simply sweeps away our sin. The love of God is one in which God's love says, I will actually bear their sin. I will mount their sin, all of their shame, all of their guilt, all of their wickedness, all of their transgression upon my son, and he will be crushed for them. He will be bruised in their place. He will be judged for them. To the degree that you see that God loved you like that, that rewires your heart. It changes your affections for this God. It takes you from simply being a bystander, observing God, and maybe admiring him. You know, wow, what a great guy. Created the universe and quasars, and yet he seems kind of cool. Like, to simply being a, just a, a bystander, observing him, maybe appreciating the stuff that he does, to actually becoming a worshiper, absolutely changed by his love. The love of God is love that is so great, so profound, that actually takes upon himself, absorbs in himself your baggage and mine, your sin and mine. And to the degree that you see that, then you can live out the imperative. We also ought to love one another. To the degree that you see that your God, your creator, is also put himself in the place to be your savior. He didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear your judgment. To the degree that you see that, that changes your vertical relationship of love to him. And it also has an effect, profound effect upon your horizontal relationship of love to other people. Because people that have been loved and received the love with such profound nature of God like this have the ability to love others now. Notice, I did not say loving others is easy. It's not. Don't fool yourself into thinking it is. That's absolute Christian nonsense. You know, oh, become a Christian and it'll be all easy. Like, life is simple. You just love other people. Right. Like, that's a person that's, you know, 18 years old and has just been like a Christian for six weeks. Right? I mean, the reality is, is that the longer you live, the more you realize it's radically challenging to love other people. How do you do it? You got to keep reminding yourself of the gospel the good news of what God has done for you. You gotta preach it to yourself. You gotta sing it loudly. You gotta be involved in community that is constantly reminding yourself of it because that's what we need. That's what changes us. That's what changes our hearts. That's what helps us to be people that love on a horizontal level that allows the world to see that we truly are Christians that follow Jesus and that allows the world to see that God truly has not abandoned this world but that he loves this world and he loves this world so much that he sent his son and he gave everything to us to rescue and to redeem it. That's the love that we need. The love that he has that he offers freely is the love that you and I need. It was at great cost and expense to himself because like I said, anytime you choose to love somebody that has nothing to do with you, that is completely different than you, that might even be completely offensive to you, it takes a lot out of you. There's a lot of sacrifice, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy that needs to go into that. But when you begin to see that that was you in the direct crosshairs of God who did everything to rescue you, then that does something of your heart, changes you.
I want to finish. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. We're going to close in a song. But what I want to do right now is I don't want to miss the opportunity because maybe some of you right now are going through circumstances in your life and need prayer. Because it might be you. There might be issues or things in your heart, in your life, in which you feel is that you feel the weight of this and it's overwhelming to you. And you realize you cannot do this on your own. But you're a Christian. So you're kind of in a, a bind. You realize you can't just simply clip this thing off or edit this reality out of your life because it is the reality. It's the reality that allows you to put your head on your pillow and sleep restfully at night. That God loves you. But then how do we live that love out on a horizontal level? That's, that's where it gets challenging. For those of you that feel like you just need prayer for something, whatever it is that's going on in your life, I, I want to I ask you to do something that's challenging, it's hard, I realize. I'm going to ask you to stand up in just a second here. And we're just going to pray for you. Not make a show of it. And the reality is this is church. This is, you know, it's a safe place. We're not going to judge you. I'm not going to judge you. I mean, I can't speak for everyone here, but I'm not going to judge you. God's going to judge you. I'm just being honest, you know. Look, you know, um, I mean, the reality is, is that we, we want to we support you and pray for you. We want to help you. We at least just want to be around you to support you. So I'm going to pray. And if that's you and you just need to be prayed for, I just want you to stand up right where you're at. And as soon as you see people standing up while I'm praying, if you can just maybe stand up along with them and lay hands on them, that'd be awesome. And then I'm just going to pray another prayer over everyone. And then we'll sing a song and finish. Sound good? Partake of communion. We have it in the back. You can partake of it as a family. If you're here and you've got kids in the back, it might be a good idea. You might want to go pick up your kiddos, and uh, you can bring them in here and do communion with them as well. But I'm going to pray, and as I'm praying, if that's you, for anything that's going on in your life, you just need prayer, stand up. Other people that are around you, see them standing up, just stand up right next to them, lay hands on them, okay? God, right now, thank you for the grace, the kindness, and love that you've demonstrated to us through Jesus on the cross, and God, what we want to do in proper rep- uh, in, in response is to confess, to repent, to turn from sin, to turn from things that God have kept us away from you or kept us at arm's length from doing what you ask us to do. We don't want the world to look and question whether or not we truly know you. We don't want the world, even more importantly, to look and wonder whether or not God really exists. We want there to be a tangible, evidential signpost that points unmistakably to the love and kindness of what you have demonstrated on the cross. And to do that, we need your help. To just simply do this on our own is really bad news. But to do it because that's what's been done to us is actually liberating. It's freeing. And so we need to trust and bring into our hearts and rely upon the fact that you first loved us. So God, right now, for anybody that just needs to be set free, there's issues in their heart, there's difficult challenges and circumstances where they're having a hard time to love, God, I, w- I want to pray for those people. So if that's you here right now, stand up right where you're at. I'm just going to pray for you. So just stand up, guys. If that's you, just stand up. Thanks. That's tough. I know it's challenging, but... You know, this is, this is, like I said, it's a safe place, man. We, we love you guys. We want to be around to pray for you. So anybody else, just stand up. And if someone's standing up, maybe just, you know, if you're sitting around them, just lay hands on those people, okay, if that's cool. Um, just lay hands on them and pray for them. So if anybody's standing up right now and they're kind of by themselves, it's an indicator to maybe someone's got to cross an aisle and, and go pray with them. 
lay hands on them and pray for them. We're laying hands on you guys. It's just sort of a way of saying we love you guys. You're part of a family. You're not just a number sitting in a seat. We love you guys. I want to pray for you. Um, if you're laying hands on someone right now, just, you can just pray over them quietly if you want. I'm going to pray one more time, and we're going to sing uh, and finish up. Like I said, you can partake of communion. I want to invite you to worship God with some rugs in the front here. If you want to just you know, get on your faces, on your knees before God, partake of communion, sing, worship, confess sin. We'll have some people available to pray afterwards as well, right at the cross. If you, there's other things that are going on in your life you need prayer for, we'll have some uh, leaders available at the cross to pray for you. So, God, thank you for those that have stood up, that you love them. And, God, you have demonstrated uh, undeniably your love to them when you absorbed their sin on the cross their sin, our sin. It's not them, it's us. Our sin you bore. And it's because you love. Even though you're a holy, powerful, mighty God, you're also full of love. And God, the greatest display of your holiness, whereby you judge sin, you need to judge sin, but also of your love, whereby you set people free as the cross. God, thank you for that truth. Thank you for you bearing, caring, being crushed by our baggage, our sin, our rebellion. So God, for these that are standing here right now, I pray that you would set them free. Set them free to worship you. Set them free to be loving, to know, first of all, that they themselves are incredibly loved by you. So God, as we sing, I pray that you would receive our songs of worship. God, if there are areas in our hearts, others that are maybe sitting down, and there's a tendency for us to be religious or think we're doing things that are well because we've got various giftings or visions or speak with tongues of angels, all those things that Paul says, but God, in our heart, we're critics. We're angry. We want to confess that before you, Jesus, and ask for you to wash us and cleanse us so that we can be transformed by your love. Scott, we just worship you now. Let's sing to him. God, all glory, all honor, all power belongs to you. God, you are all glorious, all powerful, almighty. And yet, God, in Jesus, we see you derobe yourself of all of that to take upon the deepest shame that we bear so that we who live our lives broken by our own sin, by our own shame, can be clothed with all honor by being called your sons and daughters all glory by being clothed in Christ and all power the Holy Spirit has been given to us to live inside of us to enable us to love the way that you love God we who are broken you seek to repair you seek to restore God we need your power to change us and we thank you God the way that you did that was on the cross so, Father, as we, as we scatter now, as we leave now, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit that, is, that was brooding over the face of the deep, 
would continue to move over the face of our lives, reshaping, remaking us into something beautiful. God, something that is full of love, something that loves unlovely people, something that loves those people that are nothing like them, something that loves those that are of no utility, no value, but we can love simply because you've loved us. And you loved us simply because you're lovely. So God, let your gospel change us, mold us, transform us. Send us out of here, Lord. There's like hundreds of missionaries with this unbelievable gospel to live it for your name's sake, for your glory, for our joy. God, we're truly the most joyful when we're in your presence doing what you call us to do, walking obediently to you. But also, God, for the blessing of everybody that's in our lives, our neighbors. Maybe be a blessing to our neighbors, the ones that we like and even the ones that are straight up our enemies. So God, help us, we pray, to do that. And we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.